Good morning. We come now to the next letter to the churches from the book of Revelation. When John first wrote the book and circulated it among the churches, it would have been read aloud in each of the congregations. And how do you think the message to the churches would have been received? For many of the churches, there was some praise, which they would have been appreciated, but there were also corrections and warnings. And for those churches that were later in the passage, it must have felt a bit like waiting for your school report, but worse, because not only did you want to find out what was being said about you, but you'd already heard what had been said about all the others. And when the reader got to your church, think about the sense of anticipation, the nervousness. What was the word of Jesus for you? What would he censor you for? We've come now to the sixth church in the series, the Church of Philadelphia. This was the smallest and youngest of the seven cities where the churches were. And this specific church was actually going to get some good news. There were no criticisms in their message. Philadelphia itself was founded in 189 BC and was about 20 miles southeast of Sardis. It never became a great city like some of the others because it lay off the normal trade routes. But it was set up as an outpost of Greek culture and it was intended to be a base for spreading that culture to Lydia and Phrygia, the neighboring kingdoms. It was designed to be a missionary city. And it was so successful in that, that by AD 19, the Lydians were noted as having become all but Greek, even forgetting their own language, only using the Greek language. The city itself lay on a fertile plain and was renowned for its vineyards and wine. However, it was backed by volcanic cliffs and mountains and the fertility that made it famous came from the ash deposited by previous eruptions. And because of this volcanism, the area was subject to earthquakes, and the city had been virtually destroyed in the massive quake in AD 17. And although it was rebuilt with financial assistance from the Emperor Tiberius, the city still suffered with many smaller earthquakes and tremors. It was in this city with its geological challenges and benefits, with its temples to Dionysus, the god of wine, and temples to the emperor and many other gods that a church met and worshipped and witnessed. The message to the Philadelphian church starts a bit differently to the other six messages, whereas all the others link back to some aspect of the vision John described in chapter 1, the stars for Ephesus, the sharp sword for Pergamum, the eyes of fire for Thyatira. Here, Jesus is described as holy, as true, as the one who has the key of David. Holiness is one of the fundamental characteristics of God. He is set apart, perfect and pure, and he is true. He cannot lie. He keeps his word. He's fully trustworthy at all times and in every way. In an uncertain city, where even the ground they stood on couldn't be relied on, and where the church faced persecution and opposition, that must have been a really, a really reassuring and comforting message. And it should be as reassuring for us today. 
in our uncertainty world, where our lives have been turned upside down, not by earthquakes, but by a virus, and where we still can't see a way out of the challenges that presents us with, Jesus is unchanging. He's still the same. He's still trustworthy and perfect, the stable rock on which we can build our lives. So what was the situation of the church in Philadelphia? Well, we can see from the passage, they had a number of difficulties. Verse 8 tells us they had little power. This may be because they were a small congregation, or perhaps it was because it was the majority of the members were of lower social, say, lower social classes of society, possibly even slaves, or maybe a combination of the both. Either way, they had little influence in the life of their town. They faced persecutions, we can see in verses 9 and 10. As at Smyrna, they were oppressed by the local Jewish congregation. And as at Smyrna, these Jews are described as the synagogue of Satan. They were so hostile to the Christians and so determined to reject Jesus as their Messiah that they would rather side with polytheistic pagans than another monotheistic faith. When the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts 5 and the council wanted to kill them, Gamaliel, one of the members, advised the council to tread very carefully. In Acts 5, 38 and 39, he's recorded as saying, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. The Jews of Philadelphia may have considered they were standing up for the truth, but in reality, they had fallen into exactly the error warned of by Gamaliel. And in addition to that local persecution, there was a growing threat of a wider, more official persecution, because the emperor cult was becoming more and more an annual test of loyalty, and the emperor himself was becoming more and more demanding that people worshipped him. And that emperor cult test was one which no matter how loyal to the emperor, to the empire they were, Christians could not, if they were to remain faithful to Jesus, meet, because they would have had to say, Caesar is Lord. After all, Jesus said, if any, everyone who therefore acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. But despite their difficulties, this church in Philadelphia had been faithful. They had kept Jesus' words. They'd maintained their witnesses by not denying his name. They'd endured the persecution they were facing. And despite the natural human tendency in such difficult times, to keep your heads down, to keep quiet, not to rock the boat and be inconspicuous, the Christians in Philadelphia had continued to serve their Lord, to live as he commanded, and to witness to others, no matter what the cost was. And their example is a challenge to us. Do we change the way we behave, or do we adapt our message to avoid the risk of opposition from the world, or the danger of an unpleasant reaction when we're witnessing? Do we limit our ambitions to act when Jesus is calling us to do things because of limited church resources? 
Are we individually reluctant to give more of our time or our money to support the work of the church? Do we want to wait for better, more opportune times to work? Or are we willing to step out in obedience to Jesus our Lord? We can see in this passage what the consequences are of such obedience. If we look at verse 8, because they had little power, because they were nevertheless faithful who had not denied Jesus, Jesus had opened a door before them. In verse 9, the very people who were oppressing them would bow down before them and acknowledge that they were right. And in verse 10, they were promised they were going to be protected in the coming troubles. So let's look at each of these in turn. So first of all, the open door, which also links to the key that's held by Jesus in verse 7, the key of David. Often in Scripture, a door is used as an image of being saved. Think of Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter through the narrow door, for the door is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Since this message is to a church, however, this isn't really what's intended here. Although our calling is to be a witness to help others to find that same narrow door that we've gone through. The other way the door is used is as an image of opportunity to service. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 19, referred to his time in Ephesus, where he said, there is a great open door for my work. When we're saved, when we accept Jesus as Lord, then we're called to live a life of obedience and service. And if we don't recognize and act on that call, we give the impression that we are only interested in our own salvation. Mark Guy Pierce a famous Cornish Methodist preacher of a century ago, made the comment on this, unless our faith saves us out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save us out of, heaven, out of hell into heaven. For the church in Philadelphia, the opportunity of service and witness was standing there before them, ready for them to take it. Not despite the difficulties they faced, but because of them. And isn't it often when we've run out of resources, when we're at the end of our tether, almost when we're forced into it, that then we turn to God and seek his resource, his strength, rather than trying to rely on our own. But when we rely on God, that's when we're truly effective. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and how he had asked God to remove it and how God had refused in verse 9 of that chapter, he goes, quotes God's response to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And in verse 10, Paul states, Therefore, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I'm weak, then I'm strong. And it seems that the Philadelphian church learned exactly that same lesson. Before we leave the open door, however, there is one other thing to note, and that is doors don't stay open forever. In verse 7, Jesus says, what he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, no one will open. 
Jesus is in control. He has that key, the key of David, the key that controls access to the city of God, the city that we see in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Jesus has the key, and that key is cross-shaped, as it was on the cross that he won the victory that allows us to be right with God, to come into his presence, to be part of his city. And the key emphasis is Jesus is sovereign, not only over the church, but over the world. And we should seek to see the world through his eyes, not to fixate on the difficulties, but to see that open door of opportunity that's put, he's put before us and to see the resources that Jesus can give us to make, follow his work. But it's also in Jesus' hands whether the door to salvation is open or closed. We especially need to recognize the opportunity for salvation is limited. In Luke 13, 24 to 28, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand on the outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then in reply he will say to you, I don't know where you come from. And you will say, we ate and drank with you, and, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will come a time when there is no more opportunity to be saved. The door will be closed and people will be excluded from heaven, even some churchgoers. Anybody, in fact, who has not accepted Jesus as their Lord, accepted his gift of forgiveness and salvation, no matter how many good deeds they've done, no matter what work they've done in the church, no matter how many services they've attended, if you've accepted Jesus as Lord, then this should be part of your motivation to witness to others so they can avoid that fate. And if you haven't yet accepted Jesus as your Lord, then now is the time to do it. If you hear him calling, don't put it off. Remember what Roy said last week about the book of life. Make sure your name is there. Now, the Jews as a whole expected that ultimately the Gentile nations would bow before them, and they referred to various prophecies that led to this view. One of them was Isaiah 60, verse 14, where it says, The descendants of those who oppressed you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. But the second promise we have is that the Jews that were opposing the Philadelphian Christians would come and bow down at their feet. Either those Jews would become Christians and thus recognize the church they had been oppressing was indeed serving their Messiah. This is what happened, for example, to Paul in Acts chapter 9. Or alternatively, they would have to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God at the final judgment in Revelation 20. And of course, this isn't limited to some first century Jews. It's true for every human being who has ever lived or ever will live, including anyone who oppresses us and opposes us in our service of the Lord. And then the third promise is that because the Philadelphians have persevered, they'll be kept from the hour of testing. Now, this doesn't mean they wouldn't suffer. 
It doesn't mean that they couldn't be hurt or even killed in the coming persecution, but they would be protected from evil and their eternal destiny was safe. We can see the parallel of this in Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17. In verse 11, he said, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. In verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost. And in verse 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Despite what some people say, we aren't promised an easy life as a Christian. We aren't promised physical safety or material wealth. Quite the opposite. We're called to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And many of our brothers and sisters in previous years and even today daily face poverty and physical attacks because of their faith. According to Open Doors, at the moment, about 310 million Christians are facing extreme or high levels of persecution around the world. And around 3,000 were killed for their faith last year alone. But what we are assured of is that we are part of God's family and that we can never be snatched away from him. We are protected. We're safe in Jesus' hands. Our eternal destiny is secure. And that security in Christ is emphasized again in verse 12. For a Christian living in a place where buildings had to withstand regular earth tremors and earthquakes, the importance of solid pillars to hold the structure would have been obvious. And they're told that they will be pillars in the temple of God. But if we look ahead to Revelation 21, verse 22, we can see there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because God himself is the temple. So the believer who holds fast, the believer who overcomes the opposition, that remains consistently in his faith, holds on to Jesus and stays close to him, is obedient, will have ultimately that intimate and close relationship with God, being really tightly linked with him. And of course, we enjoy some of that same closeness now because we have the Holy Spirit in us. It's not all later to come, it's now. And also, those people are going to have the name of God, the name of the new city, and the name of Jesus written on them. In Greek and Roman cultures, and many other ancient cultures, it was common for benefactors to put a plaque on temple pillars recording their contribution, and for rulers to have inscriptions boasting of their deeds carved into monuments and walls. And there's another reason why something may be marked on a building or a pillar, and that's to mark ownership. For those of us with military backgrounds, we'll all be familiar with the broad arrow mark used by the MOD, stating ownership of the property. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, and that price was the cost of Jesus' death on the cross. So as a consequence, we belong to him. We're marked as his. And as those who are saved by God's grace alone, We've got nothing to boast of apart from the very grace that saved us, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But we can bear the name of our Lord Jesus with pride and with gratitude, both now as we 
face our day-to-day task in this uncertain world, as we go about our task serving our Lord and in the world to come. That's something to really look forward to. Amen.